الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد وبارك وسلم We are in Surah 41, Surah Fussilat, or Hameem Sajda, as it is known, Ayah number 37. A'udhu Billahi Minash Shaitan Al-Rajim, Bismillahi Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Wa min ayatihi al-laylu wa al-nahar wa al-shams wa al-qamar. لا تسجدوا للشمس ولا للقمر واسجدوا لله الذي خلقهن إن كنتم تعلمون إن كنتم إياه تعبدون فإن استكبروا فالذين عند ربك يسبحون له بالليل والنهار وهم لا يسمون Here in this sequence of ayat Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to mention a few of his signs, signs of his creation and signs of his creativity, both signs of his existence and signs of his power and his uh, authority. So from his signs there is the night and then the day and then there is the sun and the moon. So do not prostrate to the sun or the moon. Prostrate to Allah, the one who has created them. If indeed it is only him that you worship. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is using his creation to provide assistance for human beings to believe in him. So the word ayah means a sign in itself and the ayah of the Qur'an is an ayah that we recite. So in the recited ayah there is mention of an ayah in Allah's creation. A sign in Allah's creation of Allah's existence. Yeah. So what is this? Now this, all of this has to do with time, the night, the day, the sun and the moon. Uh, these are all units by which we measure time, by which we engage in time, think of time and all of that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now saying that he is creating time for you. What are the elements in time, night and day? shows you the sun in the day and the moon at night and the sun and moon that gives you time in this world is also a sign of Allah's existence, Allah's creation, Allah's creativity. So he controls time and since Allah is the one who controls time, you should not worship the means by which Allah creates time you should worship the one who creates the means, the sun, the moon, the night and day, all creation of Allah. They are the means by which you understand time, in which you use time to your advantage, to your benefit, and so on. So the night has benefits and the day has benefits. 
The night is there for sukoon and for resting and for peace of mind and tranquility and all of that. And you see the night sky and you see all the stars and you see the moon at night. And the Quran mentions the fawaid, the benefits of the night uh, throughout its discourse. And likewise, this, the day has benefits. There are things that you do in the day that you don't do at night, and the day brings about the sun, and the sun gives you light and energy and life, and the moon gives you other things, uh, how other uh, objects on earth are influenced by the night, by the uh, moon. Uh, so everything is a very wholesome, comprehensive, holistic system that Allah has created. So he is the creator, so... Worship the one who has created all of these objects as props for you and for your life. These props facilitate life for you. So the, the reason why Allah has created these is not for you to become enamored and dazzled by these creation, but to worship the one who has created them for you. So this is now the very straightforward idea in the Qur'an that Allah is the creator of everything, so we should worship Him. In kuntum iyyahu ta'budun, if indeed it is only Him that you worship, uh, so meaning that if it's only Allah that you worship, then you don't need to go through means and mediation and mediators to worship Him. Okay, so the Quraysh would say, ma na'budu. That we only worship these idols since the idols are mediators and they bring us close to Allah. So Allah is saying that if you only worship Allah, then why are you worshipping these objects of creation? So uh, Tawheed requires that you worship only Allah and you do not get caught up with any of His creation. Allah is now. Allah is Allah owns the religion that is pure. A pure religion requires that you worship Allah purely, sincerely, without any trace of shirk or partnership at all. So these are things that human beings should reflect upon. The more they reflect, we take these for granted, unfortunately. We say, oh yeah, the night has benefits and the day has benefits and so on. But the Quran challenges people that if you didn't have night and you only had the day, what would you do? And if you didn't have the day and you only had night, what would you do, as mentioned in Surah Al-Qasas? And so on. So people do live there in other places, and in the Arctic Circle and elsewhere, but it's very dismal, it's very problematic, it's very difficult. You know? So we must appreciate this as a ni'mah from Allah and thank Allah for the ni'mah and worship him because he has provided the ni'mah. And that is the meaning of the next part of the ayah, for in istakbaru, that if you seek to be high and high, mighty and proud, and you become arrogant, whereas oh, this is a given, yeah, night and day on there, sun and moon is there, then you have to reflect on the time when perhaps the sun and moon will not be there on the day of judgment. Uh, night and day will not be there and so on. So a Muslim will not belittle the instruction 
all the admonition, the tadakkur and the dhikr that Allah is sending, a Muslim will take this very seriously and start to think about Allah, how to thank Him for these great gifts and blessings. If you are arrogant and you don't want to worship Allah, then there are those who are with your Lord. Okay, and what do they do? They do the tasbih of Allah. nahar In the night and day. And they do not get tired of doing that. Meaning, there's another reason for the night and day, which you do not appreciate. What is that? That the angels who are here with us during the night and during the day and those who regulate everything on earth, they make Allah's tasbih in the night. The angels of the night make tasbih at night and the angels of the day make tasbih in the day. They never get tired and they never get bored. So what is wrong with you? Mm. So here we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that there's another benefit to night and day, and that is to worship Allah, to make the dhikr of Allah, to make the sabih of Allah. And you should uh, uh, attach yourself to that creation, which is the angels, and then you should see and do what they are doing. And that is, then you will participate in their function also. So here we must believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is instructing us to participate in the appreciation for who he is by making this tasbih, saying subhanallah, and doing salat in those times, and doing the ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in those times, not just there for human pleasure and joy and entertainment. Uh, yes, you may do that as long as it's halal, but at the same time, you should also spend some time doing what you're supposed to do. So this is now the instruction Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us in this surah, that this is a tanzilu min ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. This is a tanzil, a descending from Allah, who is the Rahman ar-Rahim. So the Rahman ar-Rahim will provide now the means of life and existence for you, which is the sun, the moon, the night and day, which is earth, and in earth and on earth, and then the reason for your creation is to make the dhikr of Allah and to worship Him. And then from his signs of creation and his signs of existence is that you'll see the earth as it is. Uh, subservient and obedient longing khushur and so on that you're longing to serve someone and you are calling out to Allah for some assistance khashiatan that O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa you will see the earth look at the earth observe the earth and see the earth in the desert especially what is it doing? It's being khashi'ah. It is humbling itself. It is now longing for assistance from Allah. It is longing for a relationship with the sky and so on. So this earthly 
need for the sky to come to its rescue uh, is in the word khashi'atan. Yeah. Then all of a sudden when we send down water onto the earth to rescue it and to provide means of life for it, it starts to shake. Yeah. Yeah. It shakes out of joy and out of pleasure. And then what does it do? It grows itself. So the earth responds to the sky entertaining it. And that is the bond between the sky and the earth. So they're connected. There is a connection there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down rain from the sky and the rain falls down on the earth and the earth reciprocates by becoming creative itself. So the crater creates by means of something that is creative, which is water. So then the water is the agent by which Allah creates, as mentioned in another surah, that we have made everything living from water. So water is the agent by which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates. So now you have something else in the sky that you must be grateful for. If that doesn't fall onto the earth, then there's potential, but it's not actual. And the earth is then deprived and there's a drought. And when there's a drought, nothing grows and nothing grows, there's no food. And then you die, your animals die, and everything else. So it depends on, first of all, Allah sending down the water, the water coming down onto the earth, the earth receiving the water, and the earth reciprocating and uh, bringing about a change and creating, yielding okay, the produce. This is a product of the earth that Allah subhanahu is saying. This is how you must look at this earth, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Thank him for that process and thank him for that ni'mah. Then the Qur'an exhorts us to take a symbol and use this process as a symbol and as a lesson. <laughs> Look at this process, understand the phenomenon here, what's going on, and then uh, uh, draw a bridge from this to another reality. Yeah. So the reality here is that Allah sends down rain and water, and the earth which is dead all of a sudden receives the rain and water, and then it starts to yield its produce, and it starts to be creative, and it's alive. Hmm. Likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He will create and recreate the dead. So Allah now recreates all the time, uh, especially that He has created the first time. So the dead who are in their graves, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will send down his now rahmah upon the people who are in the grave and they will be resurrected the way the earth is resurrected when water comes down. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is asking man to reflect on this and see this one as a parable, as an example and see if they can make the connection which they should. So Allah gives you the conclusion of the parable also. Innahu ala kulli shayin qadir. Indeed, it is he who is 
capable of everything. He has power and authority and the ability over everything that he wishes to do. Okay, so when you know this, that this happens to you on earth all the time, then you must appreciate that Allah will resurrect you and give you life after death. So this is the, the way a Muslim will look at these ayat and these uh, revelations so that his life has a higher purpose. Yeah, there is a purpose to a human being's life, eating, sleeping, drinking, entertaining, enjoying and gaining pleasure and everything else, which is a purpose. Albeit it's not too much of a noble purpose, but it's a purpose. Sometimes a bestial purpose is a very biological purpose. So if you have higher purposes in life, then you must look at the cone, you must look at Allah's creation and see where you can find these parables and where you can find these instances of creativity and see how it applies to you so that you have a higher purpose in life. So the higher purpose is that Allah is capable of doing anything and he will recreate you one day. And then when you are recreated, then you will have no more purpose left in life. You will be judged. And it is according to that judgment that you will live. If you judge now, inshallah, through Allah's fadl, then you will live forever in a nice place. And if, God forbid, you're not judged that way, then you will live, but you will live in a very miserable uh, setting, which is called Jahannam. That's the idea behind the waz here, nasiha, here, the tadhakkur, the tathkir here, remembrance and the reminder from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by using uh, everything in creation to uh, the advantage of the human mind. The human mind needs to do exercises. This is one exercise that the human mind should engage itself in. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يُلْحِدُونَ فِي آيَاتِنَا لَا يَخْفَوْنَ عَلَيْنَا Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says that those uh, who now go about destroying and distorting our signs, either in the Qur'an, the signs in the ayat of the Qur'an, or the signs in Allah's creation, okay, that they... Now, use it in the wrong way, ilhad. So this is how they are profane about it, or they use it in the wrong way, they distort them, or they pervert them, or they make mockery out of them. And they say, this is boring stuff, who wants to do all of this? La yakhfawna alayna, they're not, uh, what we call it, concealed from us. They're not hidden away from us, we know of them. We know their minds, we know their thoughts, we know their attitudes, we know their aspirations, and we know everything that they want to do, etc. Because here, the gives you the idea and the reality that Allah is capable of doing anything at will. This ayah shows you that Allah knows everything when anything is done. So Allah's knowledge, ilm, and Allah's qudra. His potency and his ability are the two sifat attributes of Allah that come into play with us all the time. Yeah. So Allah knows uh, everything and Allah knows what they are, what they are going to do, what they want to do, etc. In reassuring the Prophet ﷺ that if you are rebuked and refuted and you are denied and refused, people, people refuse to believe in you, then you must take 
counsel and solace from the fact that Allah knows what it is they are saying and doing. Allah knows their attitude and their approach, so be reassured that one day there will be people who will take this very seriously and Allah will bring life to those people also the way he brings life to the dead earth, like that. In that way there is tasliyatun in Nabi Sallallahu consolation, reassurance for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That's how you read the ayah when it pertains to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. أَفَمَنْ يُلْقَى فِي النَّارِ خَيْرٌ أَمَّنْ يَأْتِي آمِنًا يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us another parable. Is that the person who is now thrown and thrust and cast away into the fire? Is he better? Or the person who comes now safe and secure on the day of judgment? Is he better? Meaning the aqibah, the consequence of people accepting Allah's guidance and admonition and the consequence of people Refuting Allah's guidance is very clear. One person will be safe and sound and secure, and the other person will be in a lot of trouble, a lot of heat, uh, literally, in that you cannot escape that reality and fact. Do what you wish. So here Allah subhanahu is saying to people, do what you wish, uh, do what you want. He's not saying that you have you know, the, the, the prerogative to commit sin. He's just saying, rhetorically, that you may do what you wish. It's up to you. We're not going to impose anything on you. We're not going to be there with a hammer uh, in your mind, on top of your mind, that you must now by force believe this way. There's no compulsion there. But we've laid down now the two paths. This path is clear, and this path is clear. It's up to you to choose which path you wish to walk on. If you choose this path it will lead you to Jannah. And if you choose this path, it will lead you to Jannah. And that choice is clear. Once you know which choice, uh, the choices and the consequences of your choices, then you may choose whichever one you wish to. That's on you. And that is why Allah will hold you responsible. Mm. <inaudible> he is looking at what you do. He's seeing what you do. He knows what you do. What you do. And all of that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this very divine revelation is saying to people, we are not going to force you to believe in revelation. We're just going to give you the, the choice, the volition, and give you the prerogative to exercise your choice and volition. But only after we've made it clear to you that the result of this choice is this, and the result of this choice is that. Once that is made clear, then there is no no dhulm and injustice can be attributed to Allah after he's made this clear. Now, if the examiner doesn't make clear to the students where the results are, where the, where the, uh, the answers to the questions are, then you can say that is now false examination, that is wrong, that is tyranny and that is oppression and all of that. But if the examiner has laid out all the answers and all you have to do is read the answers and then make the right choice when the test comes, then he is not responsible for your fate afterwards. It's up to you whether you want to pass the exam or fail the exam. This is how we see now the next ayah blending into this idea 
and this revelation innalladhina kafaru bidhikri lamma ja'ahum wa innahu lakitabun aziz so these people who are well, deniers what do they deny they reject the dhikr they reject the reminder the quran is a reminder and it is for the remembrance of allah the dhikr so they deny the dhikr they reject the dhikr when it comes to them so the dhikr comes to them the quran outlines all the results so that human beings may pick the result they want and then allah gives them the choice and when you reject the dhikr the reminder the time and time again allah reminds you this is the right answer this is the right answer this is the right answer this is the right choice and this is the wrong choice time and time again allah reminds people of this phenomenon and this reality وَإِنَّهُ لَكِتَابٌ عَزِيزٌ And indeed it is a very supreme, heavenly, mighty book. Aziz and a book of tremendous might and power, strength and durability and superiority. All of those words are inside the word Aziz. Yeah. Here we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that this is a revelation from the Rahman al-Rahim. But this revelation is supreme in its authority. mean it is the final authority on the fate of man in that sense it is supreme like you use the word supreme court in the language supreme court is the final authority so allah's kitab is al-aziz it is supreme in this sense it is the final authority that it will be the verdict is this way or this way and then the supreme court when it judges is final there is no Uh, due process left there's no recourse left it is now the official and final law of the land and so on. likewise the quran's now tahkim and the quran's authority and judgment is final in that if you commit kufr you end up here <clears throat> and if you have iman you end up here that is how aziz is supreme it is mighty and powerful and it overrules everything else so any other book that you may have access to if it says anything other than this then the quran is the final authority every other book is rescinded uh, repealed or it is now made redundant and insignificant so in this sense allah is saying that the aziz the one who is supreme in its final authority is the quran the dhikr so one component of the quran is a reminder another component of the quran that it is supreme in its authority so the quran when it speaks it speaks with the final authority of all human beings their thoughts ideas their philosophies their aqaid their actions and everything else that human beings do no one has any authority over human beings more than the quran this is how we see innahu lakitabun aziz supreme and mighty and powerful in that sense very domineering dominating and no one can escape the final judgment of the quran which is allah subhanahu wa ta'ala obviously the quran is allah sifa allah's attribute That's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself speaking in the Qur'an. He is the final uh, 
authority. Alayhisallahu bihakamil hakimin. So uh, a natural effect of being al-aziz is la yatihi al-baatilu min bayni yadayhi wa la man khalfih tanzilun min hakim min hamil. To understand this ayah in the best way possible for our circumstances today. Okay? That batil and falsehood, no element of falsehood, no element of batil can approach it, meaning the Quran, neither from the front nor from the back. Neither knowledge of anyone who came before the Quran can say to the Quran that we will derail you nor anyone who comes after the revelation of the Qur'an that they can say, we will derail you. So the Qur'an is now uh, a contextual in the sense that it does not need a context in order for it to be supreme and mighty and powerful. Uh, so, so the Qur'an will rule on people who came before the revelation and the Qur'an will rule on people who came after the revelation. That's how you see uh, the eye in context of the word al-Aziz, in context of the eye itself, isolated, then there are many benefits, advantages to understanding that the Qur'an is not a book of falsehood. Falsehood is never in the Qur'an. Wahi will not contradict itself. Another ayah. In Surah An-Nisa, that if it was from any other source than Allah, then you would have seen many, many inconsistencies in it. The fact that the Qur'an has no inconsistency whatsoever, and the Qur'an has no contradictions whatsoever, and the fact the Qur'an has no incoherence whatsoever, is a proof that the Qur'an is consistent, coherent, and it is only filled with truths and facts and realities, there is no falsehood in any way, shape or form that can be even remotely associated with the Qur'an. In this sense, it is also Aziz, supreme, mighty, powerful, that no one can put, uh, point any finger at all towards the Qur'an and say, this word doesn't make any sense or is false, or this ayah doesn't make any sense or it is false, or this surah doesn't make any sense and it is false. Or the Qur'an itself is false and doesn't make any sense. This is how we must see now the intellectual might and superiority of the Qur'an. And the Qur'an has to be understood the way the Prophet ﷺ understood it and the way the Sahaba understood from the Prophet ﷺ and how the Ummah then understood from the Sahaba that this is the meaning of this word and this ayah and this surah, and this is the meaning of this word and this ayah and this surah. So in that sense, there is now an obligation on the human being, especially those who receive the Qur'an, accept the Qur'an, to make sure no imposter comes in, and no one comes in as a foreign influence to say anything but that the Qur'an is the absolute book. And the only book of authority over human beings. So now, in that sense, if you want to say the Quran is our constitution, then it's fine. In that sense, that the final authority over human beings is the Quran that is constitutional. Then there are other ways to understand 
obviously the word constitution, which is more legal and not necessarily theological or religious. In that sense, it might be a stretch because then you'll have to get into legal theories, which is not necessarily all the time based on what you know as being the absolute truth. And so on. human beings will have a part to play in understanding how the Qur'an is now understood, interpreted, applied, and practiced. But in, uh, in our aqidah, we believe the Qur'an is immutable. It is a miracle. It is a sign of Allah himself. It is Allah's speech, and therefore there can be no contradiction whatsoever in any part of wahi, where there is wahi matlu recited, which is the Qur'an, or wahi ghair matlu, which is none recited, which is the sunnah of the Prophet Everything is in sync. Uh, wahi is comprehensive and is cohesive, is consistent. There is nothing there. So the ulama who came after the Sahaba, the Sahaba understood this from the Prophet because of the suhbah, because of the nur of the Prophet that came with them and became part of them. They did not need to go into anything that was academic necessarily. They just understood from the Prophet through his barakah. The scholars who came afterwards, they had to now engage in issues that were now somewhat not clear in their minds, in their minds. So then they had to engage in some kind of academic exercise so that they had to maintain the cohesiveness and the consistency of the Qur'an throughout. And they developed formulae and methodologies by which they would do this. One of those processes is called ishtihad. Uh, so one of the great benefits of ishtihad is that the mujtahid seeks to remove any apparent contradiction uh, that may be there apparently in wahi, either in the Qur'an or in the sunnah, or the two don't reconcile necessarily. So he would have a methodology by which he will say that this is how you remove this apparent contradiction or this uh, question about the Qur'an or Sunnah, and that is now the madhab, and that methodology of understanding. Placing each ayah, each hadith, where it belongs, that is now the role of the mujtahid. One of the benefits of a mujtahid is this, that the mujtahid will seek how uh, to remove contradiction, and this is the height of intellectual discourse in the Muslim Ummah. There's nothing greater than the ishtihad of a mujtahid in terms of academic discourse. The, that is now the greatest service to Islam is to make sure this ayah uh, is always there in front of Muslims and always applied uh, to every situation. So that is there. Jihad, their intellectual jihad, hence the word ishtihad, comes out from the word jihad, where there is tremendous intellectual stress and perspiration that the mushtid needs to go through in order to defend the Qur'an from falsehood, which has now become a very academic exercise as well as an intellectual one. So the mushtid now paves the way and lays down the foundations and the roads and avenues uh, where others can now 
choose those roads and avenues who come to the right and the same conclusion that there is no falsehood in any ayah of the Qur'an, in any word of the Qur'an. So if the Qur'an mentions this ayah somewhere here, and there's another ayah which is apparently contradictory, then the mujtah will say this ayah means this, puts its value here, and this ayah means that, and puts its value there. And that is how you reconcile all of these ideas and philosophies and you are now a testimony yourself. Uh, you are a shahid yourself to this ayah that Allah is now taking the work of the Qur'an through you, through your intellectual exercises and your discourses and so on. So, you know, just to give a simple example that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لَيْسَ shay, شَيْءٍ There's nothing like him. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that يَدُ اللَّهِ Allah's hand is above theirs, and so there seems to be an apparent contradiction. On one side, Allah is saying that nothing is like him, and the other side is he has a hand. So how come the hand doesn't resemble our hands, and so on? Okay? So that's an apparent contradiction. There's no contradiction there. So the ulama came, the ulama of the Ahlul Sunnah al Jama'a came and said, the, the ayah that talks about Allah's hand is in the context of the first ayah, where his hand is not like our hand. Okay, so you make the first ayah the rule, and then you put that rule, apply that rule onto the second ayah, and you coin the phrase, Lahu yadun la He has a hand that is not like our hand. That's how you reconcile the two, and you remove the apparent contradiction in our minds. The Sahaba had no such contradiction in their minds. So they never asked the Prophet this question. The reason the Sahaba didn't ask too many questions is because they didn't have contradictions in their mind. And the reason people set out to answer questions is because people had questions. So you must appreciate that historical fact. And that the closer you were to the source of knowledge and nur and the Qur'an, the fewer questions you had. Abdullah ibn Abbas said the Sahaba only asked 17 questions of the Qur'an from the Prophet how many ayahs you have? 6,000 ayahs. So you only have 17 questions. <laughs> What's the reason for it? Because they didn't have any contradictions. They understood each ayah where it belongs. How to place this, this and that. It was through the barakah of the suhbah of the Prophet They didn't need to. And then later on when people became far away from the source and the nur dissipated and the barakah now subsided, then you started having these uh, now things enter into your mind, of foreign influences entering into your mind, other cultures and the philosophers came into the discussion and that kind of adulterated your mind and because of that adulteration you develop questions. So those questions are not a sign of your intellect, they're a sign that you don't have intellect. The Sahaba had intellect because they saw no contradiction. That is the height of their intellect. So this is now how to understand batil, falsehood, at any level. At any, whether it's in practice, whether it's in execution, whether it's in meaning, whether it's in understanding, uh, whether it's in totality. The Qur'an does not allow any batil to approach it whatsoever. Tanzilum min hakim hamid. This is a revelation. That is from the Hakim and from the Hamid. The one who is all-wise and his wisdom is eternal. We will not understand his wisdom 
totally in this world. We'll have to wait for the Day of Judgment and then even that, we'll have to wait for Jannah before we start understanding his uh, wisdom in totality. Hakim. So some forms of wisdom may come to us in this world, but other forms of wisdom will appear to us as we move along the line towards Jannah. So he is now eternally wise. Everything he does is wise through his wisdom. Whether that makes sense to us now, that is not the question. The question is that he is Hakim eternally. He is always wise. He always will, has been, always will be. And nothing can change that. So he is now uh, Hikmah is why he reveals what he reveals. Um, yeah. Hamid is the one who is worthy of praise, regardless of what he does. Mm. All his actions are worthy of praise. The revelation is worthy of praise, independent of whether or not you understand what has been revealed. The fact that Allah's generosity is so eternal that through his jude and karam and generosity and fadl, he wanted to communicate with human beings, where there is no equation between the human and the divine. For the human to assume that he can communicate with the divine, that's an aberration. That in itself is blasphemy. I'm a human being, I want to, I want to talk to God. <laughs> Allah is eternal. He's beyond all limits and boundaries. And you, you want to talk to him? Yeah. So it's the other way. Okay. What's the other The other way is Allah wants to communicate with us. So what does he do? He allows that process to now come into being, but through his wisdom. What is the wisdom? That he will communicate only with such people who are capable of receiving his communication. And what are the prerequisites to receiving communication from Allah? There are just so many. What are they? That your ethics and moral behavior, your integrity, has to be of the highest standard in the world at that time. That no one can point a finger towards you and say that you lied, ever, ever in your life. And that is Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He's the best citizen of Makkah, even before Nabuwa. Nobody said that he lied. He is Amin, most trustworthy in the Ummah. So, so that is a prerequisite. Before you get Nabuwa, you have to be that way. I mean, your ethics and moral behavior has to be such that you are seen as an altruist. You are seen as an honest person. You are seen someone who has immense integrity that people will leave their wada'i and their pawns and everything else with you as they go away on travel. So anyone who was traveling for a long time would come and leave and deposit their belongings with Muhammad wasallam because they knew he would not touch anything. You see how trustworthy he was. And this happened also at the time of Hijrah. <laughs> when the Prophet ﷺ made Hijrah, this is after the Quraysh were bashing him, right? persecuting him. The Prophet ﷺ had to spend time uh, redistributing all the, everything that they gave him as an amana. And these amana, they came from the Quraysh, not from the Muslims. The Muslims are gone. In fact, there's too few Muslims there. 
there weren't enough Muslims. The Muslims didn't have too much either. So everybody who deposited anything with the Prophet ﷺ before Hijrah, he told Ali, you got to give this to this person, this to this person, this to this person. So now, a prerequisite to communicating with the divine is that you have divine-like attributes. You can't be a profane uh, womanizer, boozer, uh, drunkard, and say, I want to speak with God. That's not happening. You have to be at the highest level of ethical behavior that no one can point a finger about you for any uh, indiscretion. Any indiscretion. And the best person to do that is your own wife. So if your own wife can vouch that, this man, he's solid. You can't point a finger at my husband, Khadija. That's what she said when Wahi came to him. There's nothing wrong with you. You're perfect. You are the man for wahi, to receiving wahi. So now, this is how Hakim and Hamid, that Allah's now jewel and karam, his generosity, his follow, is such that he wants human beings to listen to him. But then human beings, they're not capable of listening to him because they don't have the, the ethical ability, they don't have the mental ability, they don't have the intellectual ability, they don't have the spiritual ability. Because the divine is so far away, it's eternal. How is the eternal going to communicate with something and someone who's mortal? So what the divine does is that he creates special human beings, gives them these ethical moral values, gives them the, the, the spiritual ability and the intellectual ability to actually receive wahi, and that is praiseworthy, Hamid. That act of revelation is Hamid is praiseworthy in itself, regardless of what the word revelation is. And so that you see that the Qur'an is such a book that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen everyone in line of his revelation. So the words are his, the messenger is Jibreel, who is spiritual, the recipient is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi who is a miracle in himself, and the people who are the first audience, they're also a miracle, meaning the Sahaba. All of this process of tanzil, revelation, is now from the one who is Hamid, praiseworthy. So the process of revelation is praiseworthy. Why? Because Allah is Hamid. And since the Qur'an is a sifa of Allah, Allah will always take on his own sifa in the Qur'an and through the Qur'an and with the Qur'an. So this is how, since the Qur'an it comes from a source that is Hamid and praiseworthy, the book that is being revealed is also praiseworthy and has no flaws in it, no mistakes in it. There's no inconsistency, no incoherency, and no falsehood in it. This is how now human beings must understand that the Qur'an comes as a dhikr, a reminder, and the Qur'an comes as a supreme authority, aziz, that the Qur'an is a supreme authority over all human beings, that this is the final edition of revelation that Allah has given to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to see the signs of Allah the way we should see them. May you make dua that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to benefit from the recitation of the Qur'an and to benefit from the understanding of the Qur'an and to benefit from the application of our Qur'an. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow the Qur'an to be interceding on our behalf on the Day of Judgment. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to be with the Quran in Jannah also. Ameen ya Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu ta'ala al-khayr khalq.
محمد وعلیہ صحابہ رحمت اللہ